Ladies and gents, welcome to the third episode of A. Thompson and Other Disappointments. My guest this week, super excited uh, about this one. Um, I wanted this podcast to be more than just a frustrated stand-up guy talking to other frustrated stand-up guys. Um, this chap, if I wanted to know anything about economics, about COVID's impact on the British economy, about finance, about why governments print money like all of this sort of stuff this guy is my number one guy to go to um he and i have sort of have a slightly similar trajectory in the sense that we both fell into recruitment and then i used it as a way to get into tech uh, but he used it as a way to get on in the hedge fund industry um so the next hour is me talking to him about everything from i don't know home ownership to cryptocurrency to actually yes some some pretty dark depressing stuff my advice to you guys would be pour yourself a stiff drink light yourself a doobie whatever it is that you do when you need to just chill the fuck out against some bad news and just sit back and listen to the next i hope what it is is, is an entertaining hour um but you know let's not beat around the bush there's some pretty um uh, pretty interesting uh, projections for what the next two five ten years are going to look like um, I found it really interesting, fascinating to talk to him. Please welcome Mr. Tom Pontin. Tom Pontin, how are you doing? Very well, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no worries. Thank you very much for uh, for taking time out of this disgustingly, uh, I want to say wintry day, but it's supposedly autumn, but it feels very wintry. It's just grim, isn't it? It's just... It's just grim it's wet and miserable fucking gross um whereabouts are you at the moment you sort of look like you're in a warehouse flat in london are you yeah yeah up in town up in up in west london uh, just off labrick road and uh yeah looking out the window it is pretty miserable out there it's gross um cool man well yeah thanks for thanks for taking the time to have a chat with us um i thought you would be an interesting person to to have well have a catch up with firstly but um, secondly, to get your expertise um, on your career to date and how you ended up in it. I think it's quite an interesting story. Um, and then maybe we can sort of dip our toes into the world of crypto and uh, banking and money um, a little bit further on. Because this is, full disclosure, before we go balls deep into this, this is not my wheelhouse. I don't know uh, how banking works or, or how finance works. Um and uh, uh if my if my boss sees this uh yes i work in a fintech but i i mean i make things look pretty i don't you know i don't know how the rest of it works um so it's it, i think it's just gonna be really interesting to to get your thoughts on uh industrially how finance works um but yeah let's let's start from like day dot if you like um who are you tom uh how did you end up working in hedge funds and finance yeah, it's it's a slightly unusual path, and um, you know I think uh, probably it's worth going back almost to the start, right? So I, you know, my father was an entrepreneur, and and uh, you know, that had quite a big impact on me, I guess, growing up. And uh, when I sort of went up to university, I didn't really know what I was doing in my life. You know, you go up to to Manchester in my case, and you know have a, have a fair old time up there, getting up to all sorts of mischief and some incredible uh, incredible club nights and what have you. Yeah. And I come away with a degree, which in my case was economics, but you know, it could have been pretty much anything to be honest. Um, and then I started saying, why, what the hell am I doing my life? Right? Mm. So you look around and you say, yeah, at the time, 1995, 1996, 
boom time in finance, basically, lots of stuff happening. So I thought, well, I'll just go and work in finance. So I, I went up and uh, you know, sort of contacted a few different uh, you know, people in the industry. And uh, before I knew it, one of my friends said, look, come and meet with us. I've got a search firm, basically. So come and uh, you know, meet with us and we can, we can place you into a job in the city. So I went in. And when I went in, the owner of that business basically said to me at the time, uh, look, you know, you told me you basically love you know, being on the phone, meeting people, um, making money, you know, why don't you come and work in recruitment? Mm. I, was, you know, I hadn't really planned this at all. So uh, I, I ended up going into recruitment and having a sort of crazy three years working for one of the biggest UK recruiters, uh, which was just absolutely mad because you had loads of kids running around, mm. basically placing into all the biggest investment banks, hedge funds yeah, in the city. We were all, you know, early 20s, newly newly minted up in town you know <laughs> lots of girls you know it was all quite a quite a fun you know, yeah. time sounds and, awful uh, yeah how did you cope yeah it was it was it was, it was amazing and we we're all making more money than a, a newly qualified lawyer or accountant right so you, you're doing you're having just a great time yeah and um and after three years i was like look I, this has been great but i need to go and do something you know that's going to be a career for the long term yeah so i basically placed myself you know, I contacted all the people who were looking for jobs at the time. I, I actually loaded my details up onto the system as if I was a candidate. Mm. And I basically placed myself effectively into a job for an asset management company called what was called Foreign and Colonial at the time, now Bank of Montreal. And, right. Uh, let's, let's just pivot and, there for a second. So you, you <laughs> uploaded your own CV as an applicant, yeah. as a candidate, and then sent yourself for an interview. Basically, yeah. Nice. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's, that's that entrepreneurial spirit coming through there. Yeah, exactly. And so I, I ended up at FNC, and it was it was a really odd uh, company, FNC, and it's still around today. Probably still quite odd, frankly. Yeah. Um, they manage about 150 billion in assets, or they, they did around that time. So it's, it's a big firm, but they were very, very old school. So you had this incredibly sort of old school business, which then had a sort of hedge fund arm that no one really knew about or talked about. Right. Which was basically staffed by some of the biggest brains in the industry. So these guys. And, and probably I might start losing the audience here, but they traded some of the most complex derivatives you've ever heard of. In fact, they traced what was the first ever variant swap, for example. Can you, can you tell us what, well, tell me, uh, what is a derivative and what is like, what are these asset classes that you're, you're touching on here? Yeah, so a derivative is just a, a, a um, way of getting exposure to an underlying asset. So right. the asset could be, an equity or a bond or an equity index. So any instrument that could be traded that you might trade as your you know, sort of own, own trading account or um, the, you know, any financial market instrument. And a derivative is a way of getting an exposure to that without putting all of the capital up to get that exposure. Right, okay. So for example, if I wanna have exposure to S&P, I can go and buy the S&P directly, right? Or an ETF on the S&P, or I can go and buy a future. Right. And the beauty of buying a future, which is a derivative, yeah. of the S&P is that I'm only paying a fraction of the total value of the S&P. And so then what you're doing effectively is betting on the performance of that asset or company in the, in the future, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay. And, and the thing that's really interesting about that, because I'm only paying a fraction, let's call it 10% of the total value in the case of the S&P. Yeah. I can, I can actually, with my, you know, with my million pounds that I'm going to expend, I can actually get 10 times as much exposure argument's sake right so okay. the beauty of derivatives you can get much more exposure you can get leverage 
And then we move on to the next part, which is short selling, which is this concept that people really struggle with. Yeah. But this is the idea that you can borrow an asset, sell it effectively into the open market. Yeah. And then buy it back at a lower price. Right. Okay. And, and therefore make money. Yeah. Uh, I, I can see your eyes going slightly cross-eyed at this point. Oh, right. Okay. So well, let's, let's think of a working example because like everyone is familiar with the term short selling and it has the connotations of a, you know, sort of uh, shrewd perhaps, but kind of um, almost like, like Machiavellian <laughs> layers to it where people think like, oh, that guy is a real can, prick. You can be ruder than that. He, you can be a lot ruder. Yeah, like, like, well, there's this idea, like I have sort of mental images of some guy in a suit shorting a very healthy company because they like, and they're they're putting um, a negative PR out into the marketplace to then rock the standing of the business, and then the business goes under, and the short seller makes a killing, but you know, ten thousand people lose their jobs. That's the sort of cliche, isn't it? The archetypal short sell. But what is? Exactly. Where am I going wrong with that? Is that fair? Or? No, I mean there are you know there are unscrupulous people who who do do that, mm. um, but I think that's a sort of overly simplistic and, and potentially negative way of think about it let me rephrase it a different way mm. so you have an industry where all of the participants in that industry are aligned in the fact that they only want asset prices to go up mm. okay right so what we have at the moment is an industry where our pensions our asset management businesses our um, own holdings in companies that we might be involved in all of us and central banks and governments just want the price of things to keep going up and up and up sure yeah now, the, the problem with that is it's not sustainable. Right. Right. You can't have compounding growth at, above a certain level ad infinitum, right? It's not just a perfect, beautiful curve going upwards all the time. Right. So what you what, what naturally happens, well, I can see you want to ask a question, but I want to get this. Sure, yeah, yeah. No, you crack on. So what naturally happens in markets is you end up with, um, for example, the, the, the Dutch tulip mania mm. or the South Sea bubble, right? You end up with huge bubbles where asset prices just go up and up and up. So what you need to have in this uh, ecosystem of finance yeah. is a market participant who is incentivized by making money by saying, do you know what? Those mortgage-backed securities that all the investment banks are selling are complete bullshit. Yeah. Oh, right. right. Okay. It, it's only the hedge fund guys who can do that, right? Because we're the only ones really that can profit from shorting uh, equities in this case. Yeah. So then I suppose that, yeah, like the devil's advocate or uh... – or whatever would be that the hedge fund or the shorter in that scenario is the quality control of that investment they're saying like but, right you guys are saying that this is going to go up and up and up and up forever what i'm yeah. saying is that's ridiculous and actually you need to look at the, the finite detail within it and then you'll see that this is probably not as rosy as they're suggesting that's exactly right it's right. a great analogy okay Okay, cool. So then um, let's just go back to, to you getting into this. So um, then you worked at, uh, you say, Foreign and Colonial for how long? Yeah. I was there for a few years. Mm. And then 2007 hit, mm. you had what was called the quant meltdown, which nobody really outside of finance talks about. But it was kind of the precursor to the global financial crisis, which happened the following year. Right. And it was basically all the hedge funds, which by this stage were early into uh, computer-driven uh, models. Mm. Basically, they all had a hissy fit over the summer of 2007. And you started seeing some terrible returns, some very big funds, including GSR, Goldman Sachs' hedge fund, which was 17 billion or something at the time, blew up, right? They had terrible returns and had to give all their money back. 
Right. So you have this sort of extraordinary period for those of us in the industry. And I got kind of called out by that with my firm because we were basically, uh, well, now we are getting technically, but we're, we're basically short volatility. So what we were saying is you know, volatility is getting lower and lower and lower and compressing. Mm. And then suddenly you had kind of 2007 and 2008 where volatility blows out massively. Mm. Right? And my, my firm, FNC, got completely carried out right. um, with the global financial crisis. So basically we, we all left uh, and went our separate ways, basically. And was it like a situation like the sort of famous images of Lehman's where people are like, I don't know what to tell you. It's all fucked. Like, here's a brown box, put all your shit in it and get out. Or was it kind yeah, of... Yeah, I mean, really? I, I, had, I had the sweetest um, HR guy who, you, you know, he sort of, you know, I was one of these young graduate intake guys and yeah, he came in and I'm, I'm sad to say the guy was crying as he was letting me go. Really? I really, I really still to this day, I haven't seen him since, but I still really feel for the guy. And I said, look, you know, this, this is what we do. You know, you live by the sword, you die by the sword, and this is all part of the password. It's, yeah. it's the creative destruction of, of finance. Yeah. And actually, we've lost that. I, I don't think I had any concept of what was going on when all of that happened. I was working in RBS, uh, also in HR, sort of. I was working in in recruitment I remember that. yeah and um uh just over the road from where we were yeah yeah well in a, in a sister company in fact uh yeah. to where you were doing um recruitment before but um I, like i knew that there was a bailout and i knew that everyone was saying things on the news that seemed very serious but i didn't really have any uh, certainly no expertise and no real depth of understanding as to how serious things were getting it was only years later that i was watching you know like panorama documentaries and stuff and people were saying things like, oh, yeah, like we were about 24 hours away from ATMs no longer issuing money. I'm like, fuck, yeah. what, what was I doing? I was just like in a pub over the road, probably getting hammered, thinking like, ah, yeah. oh, so everything seems a bit weird, but I'm sure it'll be all right. Um, and that, but that's human nature, right? I mean, it's the same with everything that's going on at the moment. People aren't questioning it. We're all just keeping our heads down and doing what we're told. And, you know, that's, that seems to be... Yeah, the way of things. Yeah, I suppose there's this sort of undercurrent of fear at the moment where, you know, there is a lot of uncertainty in the markets and um, there's been a lot of bailing out again and nobody really knows what impact that's going to have over the next like year or five years or 10 years. Um, mm. But everybody's got this sort of keep calm and carry on mentality where it's like, if I think about this too deeply, I might actually have some sort of nervous breakdown. So I'm just going to... Walk in for work and you know go shopping, feed the family, and, and crack on. I don't know what like it's, it's always been like this, right? This is the history of, of the relationship between governments and their people, right? And they mm. can go back to you know as far as you like, but you know in recent times the Cold War, you know this is the idea that we're all going to die from mutually assured destruction. Um, you know more recently, obviously we've got COVID. Back then it was the financial collapse. We've had Brexit. Mm. You know, this is all just a stick to beat people with to make them you know to to push them down basically. Mm. So what do you think will happen next then? Like in the next sort of, obviously you don't have a crystal ball, but if you, if you were a betting man, uh, how do you think the next sort of one, two years is going to look in Britain? So um, there, there's sort of multiple things bundled into that. I think um, one of the most sort of interesting things about this, this whole 2020 period is that you know, Brexit has almost become a footnote, you know, something that was so important to us. Yeah. It's become a footnote. And yeah, the thing before that was uh, austerity right? yeah. here in the UK. Uh, I don't know how international your your listenership is. I'm sure you've got people from all oh, around far the world, and but... wide, every continent, mm -hmm. mate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, you know, but you know, when we think about austerity, for example, 
Uh, you know, I pulled pulled a stat off, um, you know, from from listening to a podcast last night, and um, basically one third of every dollar ever printed has has been printed this year, right? Really? So when we yeah, so when we think about money printing and austerity and governments buying their own debt with their own money, just printing money and then buying their own debt with it. Yeah. Well, this year has just knocked austerity and Brexit into a cocked hat, right, and said. That's completely immaterial. This, this now is you know what we all need to focus on, and so you know, in answer to your question, what we're going to see over the next couple of years is lots of volatility, and a very weird situation where we're going to have simultaneous inflation and deflation depending on the assets. Right, and how will that right? look like for like a regular person with a house and a job and food price? Like how are the, how is that going to look for you? For you, basically, how does it? Affect let's see, let's bring this back to me, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> so there's there's multiple things that you you can package up into all this, right? So from a from a very basic perspective, printing tons of money, right, ends up going into the financial system into to different ways, right? Initially, when they started quantitative easing, which is what what we're talking about ultimately, printing money and buying bonds, right? Yeah. And then they basically realized that that was becoming less and less effective. So then they started dabbling in other areas. And now you're seeing the central banks buying equities and junk bonds and you know corporate bonds and yeah. basically just trying to keep all markets raised as long as they can, right? Trump, let's push up markets as much as we can. Yeah. You know, the whole global economy is basically, and this goes back to this point that I was making, which is it's basically this David versus Goliath battle between you know the, the hedge funds and the people who can short sell. And the whole of the financial ecosystem, which is basically all based on looking after the incumbents, right? It's about looking after Goldman Sachs. It's about looking after Morgan Stanley, JP Morgan, yeah. and the big boys. It's about looking after the, the roles of the central banks. It's about Carney going from Goldman Sachs to the Bank of England, back to Goldman Sachs, then into the you know probably the government of uh, Canada. Now, this constant sort of revolving of these powerful figures, Barroso, um, and we see it obviously in the European Union as well. You, uh, but coming back, sorry, carry to the on. Question, yeah. You know, so we're going to see lots of volatility. We're going to see, um, in terms of um, your life, in terms of aid, you know, what we're going to see probably is um, uh, a, a real bifurcation. So, so, so for example, you know, TVs are always used as an example for, in, for inflation, right? Oh, well, my flat screen television is so much cheaper. Mm. And, and yes, that is the truth. So certain objects become cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And that's largely because we've inducted billions of Chinese into the global you know, to, you know, system, mm. basically. So the last few years have been heavily deflationary. You've had these contrary forces of money printing on one hand, and then you know, basically bringing in a load of uh, mostly Chinese and, and uh, across the sort of developing world into the developed world, mm. which is naturally deflationary. So you've got these sort of contrary things. So what we've had in the last few years is mostly deflationary. However, I don't know when the last time you bought a Mayfair townhouse was or a, you know, 1960s Ferrari 250 GTO. Yeah. But the prices of those motherfuckers have gone through the roof. Yeah. Right? So the other end of the spectrum very scarce resources right like prime central london property or uh, a monet or whatever it is that you know the, the very very wealthy people of who i'm not one just to make that absolutely clear but mm. I, I get some visibility on this stuff you know i 
you're starting to see, you know, those prices go through the roof. Mm. You know, I think you know, uh, artwork, for example, my wife is an art consultant and uh, you know, artwork is something like 26% annualized return in art, for example, over, over recent years. Um, classic cars, very similar. I'm, I love racing and cars. And, uh, would love to be able to do more of it. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I look at car prices and they've just been crazy uh, this, this last couple of years. And so, you know, for you, for you, Aid, I think that the thing is cost of living is generally going to go down. Mm. But when I think we're now at a point where we're going to start seeing inflation really across the board. So that means in asset prices, and that includes all the input prices. So, for example, the whole world now is moving towards this green uh, new deal, right? The new deal, the new world order, right? Mm. So that what's that going to mean? We're all going to have to move to, to buy Teslas, right? So we're all going to need copper. We're going to need heavy metals, right? And the prices of all these sorts of things are going to go through the roof. Mm. And the prices of your solar panels are going to go through the roof of your Tesla. So um, yeah, it, it, it's it's going to be a very tumultuous period. Some things are going to really go up in value. Some things are going to go down in value. Mm. And that's a great opportunity for, for, for traders, frankly. Yeah, I was going to say, so that's sort of, you, you can expect a lot of money to be made on the Forex markets, right? Which is famously, uh, you need volatility within that world, right? Or... Well, well the, so the Forex markets are the purest, uh, in many ways, expression of you know the, uh, a country uh, at a very, very macro level, right? Because they're too big to be fucked around. But the, the size of the... Um, I'm sorry if I'm losing you your uh, you know your your swearing rating. No, on no, your, on the podcast. we're all good. Um, so uh, the the forex markets are such deep pools that they're very hard to be manipulated by central banks or or other groups. So uh, yes, in short answer, you know bond markets are very very manipulated now. Equity markets are, are very high and and just loads of money being flowing into them. So FX or forex is really where I think we're going to start seeing real movement happening let's put it that way over over the coming years yeah and then so just sort of going back to what we were saying before about short selling um in that kind of scenario we're talking about a business a company a corporation uh somebody um doing some analysis on them and then seeing that maybe not everything is above board and then saying actually i'd think twice about this and if we take that kind of analysis like that approach to uh governments or countries um you can't short sell a country right but you there is a lot of skepticism about central banks and how money is like i mean we were just talking a second ago about just printing money printing money printing money just so you can buy 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 um where like if i'm an investor and i want to uh publicly question the credibility of let's say the ecb or um the federal reserve or something how does that happen it's basically impossible Right. right, and there's this, there's a very famous fund manager, and, and some would now say infamous uh, fund manager called George Soros, mm. and famously uh, he he basically made a bet that the UK um, exchange rate mechanism with the euro basically would, would break apart, and he um, made a billion personal on on that day through through trading that. Um, wow. These days, mm. I'm, I'm sorry to say, the hedge fund industry are way too small. Mm. We just cannot compete with the central banks. And so you have a bunch of people in finance. This was quite a fringe view maybe five years ago that QE and money printing, um, this was all getting excessive. Mm. But now it's like people realize that we're at a point where we, we can't put the genie back in the bottle. And so now they're just like, 
we have to go with it. We just have to keep printing and printing money. Right. So what would happen so if they stopped QEing? Basically, the, and they've, they've kind of tapered a little bit and they have what's called the taper tantrum, right? Where markets just sold off, equity markets fell. It was like a, a tiny, tiny little, oh, we might just be trimming a little bit. And then suddenly markets just shit themselves. Right. So, you know, if, if you if you if that was just a hint of tapering, right, imagine what it'd be like. It was like, actually, we're not buying any more bonds. You guys, it's over to you. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, we're at a point now where global debt is so high, it will never get repaid. Yeah. I'm just going to let that sink in. It will never, ever get repaid. Right. Yeah. So, so what I think is going to happen is they're just going to say, oh, look, guys, it wasn't our fault. There was this terrible COVID disease. And, you know, it was a it was a global pandemic. It was so awful. And so we had to print all this money because otherwise, who knows what would have happened. Yeah. Right. And, and then what they're going to say is, but it's OK, because now we're just going to all have a debt jubilee. Right. <laughs> so they'll create a, you know, basically a, a, some kind of and you're seeing this already with the euro bonds that have been created in recent months. If the German Constitutional Court allows them to. Um, and then you have it uh, probably globally. I think people, the government's just going to say, do you know what, guys? We're all in debt. We owe it all to each other. Yeah. We're just going to have a haircut, as we call it. We're just right. going to forgive it. Yeah. Right? And at that point, that's when shit really gets kicked off because that basically people will start to question the currency that's in their pocket. Yeah. Right? They'll start to question fiat currencies. They will say, look, this, this pound that I have today, yeah. it's not going to be worth a pound in a year. It's going to be worth 90p if I'm lucky. Yeah, right? people just are not going to want to hold cash. Right? Mm. They're not going. To, and people are already saying this. Very, very significant investors in the world are already saying this. So they're going to say, Do you know what? I'm not comfortable with this. And this is where real assets like property, mm. uh, gold, mm -hmm. which is the, the original currency, yeah. right? Um, and traditionally, uh, the currency you flock to in uncertain times, right? Absolutely. But and now. And now Bitcoin and, and to a lesser extent, Ether. I was just going to say, yeah. So traditionally, you would lean towards gold in an uncertain time. But um, now we're just sort of certainly over the last five years, we've kind of moved more aggressively into the crypto world. And I think it used to be seen as a sort of, oh, you know, it'll be like my cousin who's a real nerd and he sits in his basement and he mined a couple of crypto cryptocurrency like it was this sort of cliche of you know the geek might get involved in it but now it's very much kind of knocking at the door of the mainstream right yeah, um yeah exactly so what's your sense of how that's going to mature over the next two to five years again i'm asking you to look in your crystal ball but do you yeah, is, is yeah. crypto something that is troubling or uh exciting people in the hedge fund world uh i would say definitely exciting mm. right so so crypto is only troubling if you're a central banker or, you know, you are a politician, frankly. Mm. Uh, you know, there's a famous guy, and, and if people are, if they haven't turned off already, you know, and they are interested in what we're saying, you know, there's another podcast called Real Vision uh, mm. by a guy called Ralph Hal. And, you know, he talks about this as being basically, you know, as hoovering up the whole of, um, you know, uh, investment assets, right? Mm. So if you think about it, the beauty of crypto, right, and beauty of Bitcoin specifically, is it's finite. Mm. Right. So there's only a, a finite amount of it in the world. Right. Like gold. I think there's a statistic where gold is um, if you put all the gold in the world that's ever been mined together, it would fit underneath the uh, Eiffel Tower in Paris. Right. Right. And Bitcoin is the same concept. It's a finite asset. There's, there's a limit on how much there will ever be. Yeah. Right? And so it's uncorruptible. 
right? What I mean by that is the central banks can't fuck with it. Right? Yeah. They, they can't, you know, um, try and print more of it, right? So, so for those of us who are looking and going, well, hang on a second, I don't believe these inflation statistics that you, the government, are giving us. I don't believe RPI and CPI and how we benchmark nurses' wages and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. I actually think real-world inflation, the inflation that I see when I go to the shops or, you know, I want to buy a house, yeah. you know, it's been way more than that. You know, so, so for me, you've got gold, which is your store of value, mm-hmm. right? That's, re- that's your real value. And uh, to me, I should... You should price everything against gold, right? So your house is worth X number of ounces of gold, right? Yeah. And actually, if you look at those numbers, those are very constant, to be yeah. honest, right? What has gone up in, in house prices, let's say, is basically this, um, you know, this, the, the, the what, it's not that the house price has gone up, it's that your currency has gone down. Right. Right? And the governments all want their currency to go down because they have so much debt. Yeah. It makes their debt much easier to pay off. Right, I see. You got it. Yeah, yeah. Right. So, so, so a bond, right? Most bonds are ten or twenty years, right? So you're saying basically, like this, a bond is basically saying, I will pay you a certain level of interest, yeah. and at the end of twenty years, I'll give you the original amount back. So, uh, you know, a thousand pound bond, yeah. you give, you know, your your yield each year, one percent a year, and at the end of the period, you get your thousand pounds back. Right? Yeah. Well. If at the end of that period your thousand pounds isn't worth a thousand pounds today, it's actually worth five hundred pounds. Yeah, yeah. Four hundred pounds, three hundred pounds, right? <laughs> it, do you see what I mean? Yeah, it's, yeah. And and you can keep refining all the way up, right? You can just keep refinancing all the way up the curve. Yeah. So then, who's... what would you do if you're a central bank? Yeah. Well, the other thing I was going to say. So if if cryptocurrency is such a threat to central banks and to the system, um. I, like I'll give you my experience or example of of what happened to me with crypto. So about I think it was about four, just over four years ago now. Um, I started buying uh, not bitcoins plural, but like sort of percentages of Bitcoin using a, a mobile phone app. And like I had this idea that I was like, do you know what? I spend a fuckload on coffee every day. I was going into the office like three coffees a day in this little cafe, and I just thought. I'm just going to make I'll make a coffee in the in the little shitty cafe like kitchenette bit and instead every time I'm going out for a coffee I'll just buy like a coffee's worth of bitcoin right just, more more than anything just to show how much I was fucking spending on coffee every yeah. every day and every month so off I went like doing this and um I ended up putting about 250 300 quid into it um and I was shocked by how much this the value of this was going up. It was just every day going like this was really in that sort of first burst of uh, Bitcoin, um, go, like shooting up in value, and um, it sh- it reached a peak of I think from memory about one point two k or one point three k, and uh, and I was like this is amazing, uh, biggest advocate for crypto ever, and um, and then uh, my son was about to be born and we decided to go on like a baby moon thing. And uh, I thought, oh, well, this will pay for, like, you know, us going away and spending money and stuff. So um, I said to my girlfriend, I was like, uh, yeah, don't worry about it. I'll pay for it. I've got my Bitcoin money. And um, and I'd got, like, a Visa um, thing that I could literally draw the cash out with. And then literally the day before we were going away on this baby moon, um, I tried to draw out, like, 200 quid the night before just to get some bits and bobs. And it's, it just said no, like, declined. And I was yeah. like, what the fuck? <laughs> 
And then the next, I thought, oh, it must just be that ATM. Next day, I'm like, we're at the airport and I'm trying to draw up money with this thing. And it's like, no, can't do it. Then I started Googling frantically going like, what the fuck is going on with this? And, um, and I found this, yeah, like a news report saying that the, not the actual card issuer, but the card issuer's thing that they got the license from or something yeah. had, they'd had their license revoked immediately with no notice, um, oh. over something to do with like government, um, uh confidence in crypto or something and it like i lost not just a thousand pounds out of it but like the the headache of having to transfer like i managed to get the money to my friend's italian account by sepa transfer or something and then he had to convert it to euros and then send it to his uk anyway like there was a, a really long pain in the arse and it whittled down to 300 pounds that i managed to get out at the end of it and after that, I was like, what a fucking ball ache. Oh, um, sorry to hear that. I'd lost basically everything that I'd made on it. And um, oh. and it just made me think, okay, well, let's say, um, odds on, I think, that Bitcoin will continue to go up in value. It might not be drastically the way that it was over those first few months. Yeah. But probably it's a good investment because it's the chairman of the board in terms of crypto. Yeah. Uh, but if I continuing to invest you know let's say i put in 10k or 50k this time and then a central bank or their friend in government or uh you know somebody basically says this is a real threat to central banks everywhere and to the system let's cancel them let's pull out their license last minute like i can't afford to lose 50 grand <laughs> so i wonder sure. like you know how is this going to play out because at some point the two the the new kid on the block of crypto and the oldie worldie of central banks is really going to come to a head right so how yeah. how is how are we going to make those two play nicely well and that, this is the absolute nub of it right so on, on one hand you know one end of the spectrum you've got this idea that um you know the, the, the central banks and the, the regulators are going to basically ban this right so and they've tried that in various ways but the thing is about crypto and this is the beauty of it right and this is the why it's you know, it was originally enjoyed by, you know, Silk Road and all the, the, the dodgy people you can imagine that inhabit the dark web. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I can see that, that thousand yard look in your eye when I mentioned the dark web. <laughs> no, and so, the dark web, you say? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, on one hand, you know, they can try and buy it, ban it, but, you know, there's always going to be a, a Russia or Panama or somewhere you can go, right, to, you know, you can just fly in for the day and then just mm. release it and put it into rubles, whatever, right? Someone's always going to offer crypto tourism, right? So mm. I think they realize that the genie is out of the bottle and they can't, you know, they can't, they can't do anything about it, right? So, so then what they tried to do is say, right, we're going to have our own digital currencies. Yeah. And you're seeing like rumors about this, white papers written by Bank of England and, and other people, Italians talking about mini bots, all these various different ideas kind of floating around, right? And this is really, really fascinating, right? Because the government can have their own digital currency, mm. right? And again, it just so happens that with crypto, we can suddenly now just ban physical currencies, right? We can just move everybody into it. Now, governments love that, right? Because suddenly there's no crime anymore. Mm. Right? It's very hard to transact crime. Um, you know, uh, if you've got no cash, mm. this sort of idea of the cashless society, um, the government can see everything you're doing, right? Which means they can tax you on everything you're doing. And they love that, right? They have control, right? They can see everything. They love that as well, right? So all the sort of 
really terrible, scary things that we're experiencing in 2020 are kind of all coming to a head. Mm. And frankly, it's got nothing to do with COVID. It's got way more to do with you know, surveillance society and all the other sort of issues that we're experiencing in sort of governments uh, globally. And you know, we see that manifesting itself in Chinese Communist Party and the way they treat individuals, the way that you know they have facial recognition, the way they're scoring their citizens. Mm. We can kind of see a roadmap for where you know, things are going, right? And it doesn't look good, right? It's, it's frankly terrifying. Um, I, I think the most scary thing about that is if let's say that we move into uh, a government sanctioned cryptocurrency uh, or uh, the US and the UK and the EU all decide uh, in unison, OK, look, Bitcoin is too big to, like you say, like to put the genie back yeah. in the bottle. Uh, let's let's try and uh, formalize it. Let's try and put some structure around it and then make it our own like thing yeah. and regulate it um the the most terrifying thing about that is i mean how the fuck are you going to buy drugs if the government can <laughs> see what you're doing <laughs> this is devastating yeah i mean I, I would posit i mean i understand that that is a big concern for some people but i would posit what's even scarier about that is they say right um uh you uh tom mm. right you, it's a digital currency, right? They can apply whatever interest rate they want, right? So for for, for people who are, you know, I'm, I'm doing okay, let's put it that way, mm-hmm. right? They'll say, um, right, you're going to have a negative interest rate of 5%, right? They want me, they want people who have money to go out and spend, right? So the wealthier you are, the higher effectively your your negative interest rate will be, right? So you're out spending money and recycling money in the, in the, in the economy. So the £100 you have today is only going to be worth £80 in, in a couple of months' time, basically. So you're incentivized to spend it. And right. then they can give pensioners a savings rate, right? So they can give pensioners a plus 5% pension rate. Right? So you can have, like, bespoke yeah. you know, inflation rates or interest rates, yeah. positive or negative, and they can punish you. Do you think right? it would if get that to... radical? I imagine if they did something like that, people would be in uproar. They would just be like... Oh, no, that's it, like everyone is equal. And if I save £10 this week, then it should be the same rate as like my mum or gran. Um, I, I, honestly, I, I think we're just a few years away from Blade Runner at this point. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know, man. Like, I, I think, like, I can't imagine a, a universal cryptocurrency taking hold at the moment. I think people who get into crypto like the fact that it's you know the new kid on the block and it's unofficial and they can get up to whatever they like out there i think as soon as it became regulated like you suggested a minute ago something else will come up like if they if they somehow manage to wrap a net around bitcoin so like it would be ether or it would be you know um i don't know aid coin or so like there would be some way of getting around it because frankly i know that you and i are moral upstanding citizens <laughs> There's a lot of people out there who have a vested interest um, and and who have influence. You know, let's be real about it. Like people who have made an awful lot of money out of, let's say, the opium trade, um, who have the ear of key decision makers whose interest it is not in to then say, yeah, okay, let's make let's get everything right, guys, you know. yeah, and and but it's it's going to be such an interesting period this one because it it can go one or two ways. We're either going to go incredibly authoritarian, mm. and and governments are going to try and control every inch of our lives, or you're going to go the other way, and we're going to go towards much more libertarian society where people say, you know what, mm. we've tried big government, it hasn't worked, we've bankrupted the whole system, 
And yeah, I think there's going to be a big financial collapse in, in the coming years. Mm. And I think I think gold and crypto are going to be a big part of how you survive that. Mm. Um, but I think there's going to be, I'm sorry to say, some really, really difficult um, times over the coming years um, for, for, you know, sadly, most people. People are going to lose their pensions. They're going to lose their homes. Uh, and I think it would be a real big shock. And I, I think in that, um, you know, in that environment, having a little bit of crypto or a little bit of gold or ideally both, you know, is, is mm. um, you know, definitely good. And look, I'm only talking about the negative aspects of this. But if you look at, for example, Ethereum mm. as an ecosystem you know, and, and all the incredible things you can do in terms of, you know, DeFi and, and that side of things, you know, it's, it's incredible, the power of it. And I'm only now really starting to see, you know, the, the apps that get built off the back of this, yeah. the custody. I mean, custody is such a big thing in finance, but this is the idea of the person that holds your assets, right? So, you know, um, if you can have somebody who can actually say, you, A. Thompson, right, I can see you have a property and that's on the blockchain and you have, you know, some crypto assets and yeah. you have some gold and you have, you know, X, X, you know, X Y, Z, then, then suddenly it's a lot more tangible. Right. Mm. And people would say, oh, OK, I can I can lend money to aid. He's got, you know, a house and, da, 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 and yeah. things become a lot cleaner and we can completely disintermediate the banks. Yeah. Right? And that, that's what's going to happen. And, and that's what I think is really exciting. Yeah. I talked to Lucy, um, my, my girlfriend, a lot about this, about how because she works in property. And to my mind, like when we bought our place, it seemed so clear to me that it was so ripe or a complete overhaul with something yeah. like blockchain because it just yeah. takes so fucking long to get everything done and yeah. you're dealing with like hard copies of things and and signatures with a you know has to be a black biro and it, like oh like, this is fucking yeah. ridiculous like why have i got to drive down to this little solicitor office uh, office in like the other way other side of london and then wait you know four weeks and 28 day periods and all this stuff like the way that this should work is you know i go onto a portal i enter in my date of birth uh, my national insurance number they can find me they verify that i am who i say i am um then they issue me a pin and you know and and then there is like like you said a minute ago like there is a blockchain element to it that is un basically unhackable that represents your asset or your investment um and and then furthermore you could kind of you could adapt and evolve that where it's not just me with my asset like you know 400k for a house it's me and let's say 10 other people who have all then split the asset and we all have yeah. like a proportion of that piece of the blockchain but that actually wouldn't be that difficult to to code up i mean i know it sounds yeah. a bit fantastical but speaking as a technologist you're talking about a sort of you know two three four teams of devs over a period of six months to get like an mvp maybe a year to get like, yeah. you know proof of concept territory and demo it um, and yet here we are five years deep into blockchain and absolutely none of that has moved forward. And yeah. it... I mean, tokenization is, is you know, obviously a huge part of it. Mm. Um, and, and for property, you know, so much of a country's wealth is, is actually tied up in its property markets. Right. And that's what gives that's why central banks are so keen to um, have low interest rates and people not to lose their homes. And it's, there's so many interesting aspects of that you know thatcher i'm sorry sorry to mention her name everybody but you know her idea of giving everybody a home mm. was really because you know think of the, the period of the time right very low uh, take up of property mm. right so and people were rioting right you had the miners strikes everything else right if somebody owns their own property then they're very unlikely to go out rioting they're very unlikely to you know go out and, and cause trouble right mm. because 
know, having your own home. It's been shown during wartime that actually losing your home can be more traumatic than uh, losing a, a loved one, losing a family member. Mm. So yeah, it I can be it. a real... Yeah. yeah, I mean, I love my family members, don't get me wrong, but uh, it's like I've often wondered what the... like. So we, we talk a lot, or have talked a lot over the last couple of episodes of this about um, Twitter and about people becoming social justice warriors and uh, campaigning and ranting and um uh and i wonder to what extent uh home ownership has played a role within that because i think yeah. I, th I think you're onto something there i think like the studies if they do show that are, uh backing up what i've mused on before where i'm like you know if i go out and i buy a house and i've got a mortgage and i know it's there for 25 years or 30 years and i'm paying into that every month to chip away to have somewhere for my family to grow up and grow old um I've, there's an investment in society in that and I just need to go to work every day and earn the money and come back home and think about how I'm going to get promoted, et cetera, et cetera. When you take someone out of that scenario and you yeah. put them into a different world where they are renting and two thirds of their income, and I've fucking been in this world for a while. Um, and, and yeah, two thirds of their income goes on their rent. They can't save. They can't get a fucking deposit together. There's no housing schemes for them to jump on or, or try and get an, like get on. Um, I wonder what that does to someone's psychology in terms of how they how they busy themselves, how they justify that they're not getting on. Um, what kind well, what of what is the point? What is the yeah, point? If you're, yeah. if, you're, if you're a disenfranchised kid now, mm. and you're at school with a, you know thirty kids in your class, and you're not you know you're not getting uh, any attention, and you're looking ahead and you're thinking, I'm never going to own a property, mm. right? I'm probably never going to have a half decent salary. Mm. Uh, I'm probably going to get paid um, uh, MMT, you know, uh, this idea that we're all going to get just paid by the government to sit on our asses or, or do whatever we want to do, right? Mm. And, and probably I'll never own any actual asset. I'll probably never own my property. Why is the point? Yeah, you know, I'm not saying that, I'm not saying that owning property is the be all and end all. I'm not far from it, right? But but actually, unless you yeah, striving to, to do something, to make something of yourself, what is the point of it all? And, and frankly, I, I, the, the most terrible thing about this Ponzi Beeson bit and the, the, pit, the bit that people, I think, don't really understand because they just think of this as a financial thing. They don't really think of the social impact of this. But mm. making UK house prices so bloody high, right, that they're 10 times the average earnings mm. has actually disenfranchised a whole generation of I'm not even kids now, right? I'm probably at 40 years old, you and I, yeah. right on the cusp of ever owning. Most people younger than us will never own a home. Yeah, That's yeah. A terrible, terrible thought. But it's like, I mean, how do you correct that? Like, is it the the uh, trajectory that I always think that we've ended up on is basically that successive governments have, have failed to build sufficient numbers of houses. Um, yes. And whenever they broach the subject of do you know what we should build half a million new homes or we should build 750k new homes because that's how many we need to build every fucking year until we get this right as soon as they say to let's say my mp in aldershot you've got to build fucking fifty thousand homes yeah. uh the the and mp will be like will come out and say oh no i don't want that built in my well, backyard even worse like the mp will just go like well i could do that but yeah as soon as i build like you know 500 new builds uh, around this area we're going to lose this seat because i promised them that they could keep their countryside back guard and so then they just don't get built and then they keep the voters and and the homeowners continue to vote let's say conservative yeah but the problem with that is that 
as <laughs> as the homeowners get older and die, fewer and fewer people become the homeowners, but also get more and more desperate in that rent trap. And I, yeah. what I hope happens is that there is some sort of shift in policy to reflect the urgent need for building homes before the the masses actually get really out of hand. Because I think it could easily spill into a situation where, um, uh, you know, AI and machine learning are taking away a lot more jobs, uh, and and that number grows year on year. And I think homes become harder and harder to buy. And I I wonder what that will look like in like sort of five, 10 years time when people are right, so, so here, desperate. Here's, here's, and, a, mm. here's a really scary thought for you, right? So there are now, uh, and I'm going to look at my notes here, $18 trillion of negative yielding debt, right? 18 trillion. I mean, that's a number that we just can't even I'm too confused imagine. to even get terrified by it. Yeah, exactly. What does that right? mean I mean, for an idiot like people, me? People spout these big numbers, but I mean, it's just such a huge proportion. Right. So all the debt in exists, most of it now is negative yielding, right? So most people, and there's a famous hedge fund manager called Ray Dalio, who, you know, it's worth downloading his um his book principle, or it's a pamphlet called Principle. Very interesting side mm. note there. Okay. 18 trillion of negative yielding debt. What does that mean? That means that global investors basically shouldn't own debt, right? No one should own bonds in a country anymore because it's basically you're just gonna lose money, right? It's a guarantee. Right. Right. So so where's that money going to go? So you've got printing all this money yeah. and yet making the whole bond market uninvestable. Yeah. Right? All it does is it pushes all the money somewhere else. Now, if I'm looking for a steady income on a regular basis, and I think equity markets are toppy, where am I going to put my money? I'm going to buy a property. Yeah. Right? Oh, shit. What's that going to do? It's going to drive up the property market. Yeah. It's going to drive up rents. Yeah, and it's going to squeeze the yield, i.e., the, the the return versus the price. Mm. It's going to get lower and lower and lower. Yeah, but still, still in absolute terms, going up. If you're Mister Renter, yeah, right, if you are that twenty-five-year-old kid who's moved up to London to get their first job, well, I'm sorry, your rent is still going to be two-thirds of your salary. Yeah, yeah, but and but the value of that property is going to go up and up and up. Yeah, right. So the whole system is basically a a, a geared way of pushing up house prices. Yeah. And, and frankly, there's only one way this whole thing can end, which is a, a massive financial collapse. And I, I say massive. You know, 2008, you said you were there, you know, at, at the pub, mm. thinking this is all a bit odd. I'm sure we'll get through it, right? The, the next one isn't going to be like that. It's going to be like the Weimar Republic, with people wheelbarrowing you know, notes in it down the road and to exchange for a loaf of bread, and you know, frankly, rioting and ATMs being out of cash. I mean, I really do think things could get that that serious. So I guess my one of my final questions, because I'll, I'll have to wrap up in a second, um, but let's assume that you're right. Everything collapses. Um, what does Tom Pontin do in the post-apocalyptic world? What do you see yourself as? Warlord? Farmer? Playwright? Um, my hope, my hope, right, is that by that point in time, I have escaped Right. Yeah. So we 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 talk about it openly. My wife and I. Yeah. You know, I want to be. I want to be what we call the nuclear option. I want to be out out of the country, certainly out of the cities. Right. I want to be on my own land. Yeah. Generating my own electricity. Yeah. Because uh, electricity prices are going to go through the roof. Uh, growing my own vegetables. Yeah. With some high walls. You know. Yeah. And and hopefully hopefully some private some private security. <laughs> 
there's an irony <laughs> there, isn't it? Like, I, I mean, I work in tech, you work in finance, and you would think if you didn't work in these worlds, oh, well, they're invested in the future of technology and they're invested in the future of banking and they'll have solutions and ways to fix all of this. But I really, you know, I, I'm in the same boat as you. Like, I'm like, I, I don't think this is going to end well. And right. uh, I don't know if you saw, did you ever see the um, the documentary? I think it came out in 04 or 05. It was a film called Collapse um, by right. Michael C. Ruppert. Um, and he was, it's quite a weird story. Um, uh, but he was an ex-CIA agent. Um, and he came to prominence by accusing uh, publicly the CIA of um, uh, selling crack, like deliberately within Los Angeles. Um, and then later on, they, like further down the line, this documentary crew uh, wanted to interview him about that. But all he wanted to talk about was peak oil. And so the documentary is sort of um, is is about that and set against the backdrop of what's going to happen when the oil starts to run out. And it gets, it's really fucking dark viewing. Um and it's basically him saying, like, you know, to begin with, and, and remember this is in 0405, he's saying, like, um, you know, to begin with, we're going to start seeing a lot more Middle Eastern military activity. We're going to start getting desperate for gas pipelines. Um, you're going to see military presence in places like Syria. And, and all of this stuff has become true. Um, yeah. He committed suicide in, I think, 2000. Committed suicide. <laughs> two, to, two to the back of the head, yeah? Well... I don't fucking know. Like when I read that he had committed suicide, I, obviously I was like, "Oh come on!" But it sounds as though there's, you know, interviews with his wife and everything, and you know, they were living off their land and and everything. And uh, she seemed to think that he had genuinely killed himself. Um, but uh, but yeah, a lot of what his whole thing was about was uh, that things are going to get really ugly, and it really fucked with my brain for a good like two or three years after I saw that documentary, and it shifted what I thought could like society would be in the next few years i really thought well the oil's gonna run out so everything's fucked and i was thinking like when i first got into crypto i thought it wouldn't hurt to have a little nest egg in this far-flung thing where if everything does go to shit at least i can draw out some money or i can charge something to this card and then feed the family for um you know for a day (laughs) or maybe move yeah um And, uh, you know, I would, I suppose in a perfect world, I would have a, an escape plan similar to yours. Like, you know, jump on a plane, get the fuck out of here, private security, and then just sit and watch it all unfold on the internet. But, um, I don't imagine that I'll have the, uh, resources to be able to do that anytime soon. No, nor do I, sadly. No. Still though, maybe some sort of underground bunker. I mean, look, there's a reason why Peter Thiel and and all the biggest, you know, tech entrepreneurs on us have bought up half of New Zealand, right? They're all building bunkers. They're all building oh, really? somewhere that's yeah, yeah, yeah. They've actually New Zealand have actually had to ban overseas buyers of land. Really? Yeah, and this that's is a big question, right? You know, where do you actually go? Because yeah, you know, the, this is this is a global. You know, I hate to say the word, but pandemic. It's a pandemic of debt. It's a pandemic of government oversight and overreach, frankly. Yeah, and uh, there are very few places you can actually escape it. Yeah, I suppose. But I knew I'd probably be there. Yeah, yeah. I suppose, I suppose like the next best thing is a kind of like panic room in your in your city townhouse or something. Um, but I mean, I've got a shed, so that's yeah. So I've been admiring the. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, one day it might be a studio. We'll see if we'll see if the apocalypse hits before I finish turning it into a proper studio. Um, 
Okay, cool. Um, and then last question, promise. Um, uh, you've worked in, in, in hedge funds for a while. Um, there are obviously there's rumors and, uh, stories that happen, um, about what high society and city finances get up to when the curtains are drawn and, uh, and the lights are out. Um, you know, I'm just, just curious to see like, what's the most outrageously opulent thing that you've observed? at one of your city hedge fund parties you don't have to name who was involved or what oh, wow. the, what the client was or anything no it's a great it's a great question because funny enough i asked that question at, and there's a conference called euro hedge that used to be in paris and it, we always used to end up in the buddha bar yeah. and i for some reason got invited onto the the top table with all the, the very senior guy senior guys and ladies and i um and because the, the hedge fund industry is quite i'm pleased to say quite um reasonably broad church when it comes to uh diversity um the uh, and I asked the same question, and everyone was like, "Oh no, 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 no! I couldn't possibly tell you, right?" And then afterwards, a few of them sort of sidled up to me at three in the morning and said, "Oh, you should have seen it. There was this one time we all got <laughs> flown out by Learjets to Brazil, and then it was a private plane down to you know, <laughs> and, and you know there were platters of this, that, and the other, and naked yeah. ladies here and there everywhere." Now, unfortunately, my experience has been none of that. Yeah. Um, I haven't really had any sort of super glamorous uh, or exciting yeah. uh, experiences, and uh, it's it's all very dull. I'm, probably because I'm working for quant hedge funds, so most of the guys I deal with are techies, so yeah. they're uh, you know, very technical people. And, and like your you know, crypto mining cousin, yeah. most of them like to be in a basement looking at data rather than you know, getting up to all sorts. Yeah, yeah, getting up to all sorts. Yeah, yeah. I had a, a similar sort of thing like back in the day. Um, my my then girlfriend knew that i worked in the city in a bank and wore a suit every day uh whereas she was sort of you know quite a bohemian um cardigan wearing girl with dreadlocks and uh and so i think to, like in her mind i was this sort of you know city high flyer or whatever Pro probably because i had led her to believe that i was a city high flyer <laughs> but uh but yeah like she would say stuff like you know oh you get up to all sorts i bet the sort of parties that you go to in this oh god like tell me tell me about the debauchery and i'll just be like i work in recruitment are you fucking kidding me like i work in a basement and people throw cvs at me like that's my life um anyway right i'd love to tell you it's more glamorous but yeah not. all right well not to worry that's more glamorous than uh than i get uh out in my shed coding um <laughs> But yeah, thanks very much for, for joining me, Tom. Um, if people want to like hear more from you or like, I don't know if you're doing sort of speaking stuff now or if you want to give us the name of any other podcasts that you're on or. No, no, that's very kind of you. Uh, but uh, no, not at all. But yeah, people can reach out via the link on here and uh, mm. if they are interested. But I, I doubt anyone will be interested in any, any more of, uh, of me for now. <laughs> all right, mate. Cool. Well, uh, thanks very much. Catch up soon. Thanks a lot. See you later.